Thank you, Liz. And if you've got a Bible with you or perhaps a phone, it's well worth um, having that passage open, 1 Timothy 6, and we'll be in verses 3 to 10. Hopefully on your way in, uh, you got one of these bits of paper as well that's got an outline of uh, where we're heading uh, as we look at this together. Um, I'm going to pray and ask uh, for God's help as we uh, open his word together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that... Uh, well, as the psalmist said, it's, it's so easy uh, to lose sight of you and your purposes and your plans uh, for all people. And yet, like the psalmist, we thank you that when we come before you and your word, that uh, you make clear uh, what is important, what matters both now and forever. And so we pray, Father, for humble hearts before your forever word now. We pray that you would not just humble us, but give us hearts willing to listen willing to obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I took my son uh, for an x-ray this week after yet another skateboard-related injury. Uh, it's a brilliant technology. No, not the skateboard, but uh, x-rays or uh, medical scans. They are phenomenal. Just watching him go through this process again, the, the ability that medics have to, to see beyond skin deep, to see the very bones of who we are, the, the heart of who we are. And as, a, as he was going for his scan, uh, th this passage was in my mind. And uh, here's my question for you, or something I want you to imagine. Imagine the scanner's on you right now. There's a giant scanner running across this room, and it is scanning not skin deep, but it is scanning the very bones of you, uh, the very heart of you. And up on these screens is going to appear what is in your heart. What drives you? What, what gain you are most after in this world? Uh, I wonder what would come up on the screen. It's uh, somewhat uh, disconcerting to think that it will come up on the screen, isn't it? But uh, what is it that drives you? What is the big gain that you live for in life? Uh, I guess one of the ways that we could work that out is that we take something like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this sort of pyramid of needs, starting with just basic necessities. Maybe we all want that. We all have that as a gain that we, we, we want to have in life. Uh, but then work your way up the pyramid. Uh, perhaps you want security. That's what you live for, feeling safe and secure and comfortable. That's what drives you. Or maybe go up even further, beyond just feeling safe, uh, having healthy relationships, enjoyable friendships and relationships in life. That's, that's what drives you. Go up even further, and uh, on that hierarchy, it talks about the desire, the longing for recognition, to, to have achieved something in life that people see and notice and go, ah, see what they've done. Perhaps that's something that drives you. And then right at the top of that hierarchy is the idea of self-actualization, being all that you can be, achieving everything that, uh, well, is within your power to achieve. Now, I hear a list like that, and I think, well, does it have to be like a menu where you choose one of those things, or can it be more like a smorgasbord where I have all of them, please? Uh, what, what is it for you? If you had to choose one thing that drives you, the big gain that you're after in life, what is it? What do you hope to gain? Now, I ask that because 1 Timothy 6, this part that we're looking at uh, together, is all about the idea of gain. Uh, that word repeats uh, throughout uh, these verses, and it forces us to ask the sort of questions that, that I've been asking us just now. And it is actually within a letter that we're coming to the end of now that has made clear as its big theme, not 
uh, whatever might be in our heart, but the big gain, the goal that God has in this world. I wonder if you've picked it up as we've gone along. What God is doing in this world, what what he is driven by, it is, well, it's who he is. Uh, The very first verse of uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, told us he is God our saviour. That's what he's doing in the world. He's about salvation. He is Christ Jesus, our hope. He is about bringing hope to the world. That is what drives our God. That's what he wants. Uh, you remember chapter 2, verse 4, we were told what God wants in the world. He wants all people to be saved. That's his gain. That's what he is after. And he has absolutely spent the lot to gain it. Uh, again, 1 Timothy told us that Christ Jesus, his son, came into the world to save sinners. This goal of salvation, he has given everything to bring it about. That is God's great gain that he is about in this world. And it is actually why this church exists, why his church around the world exists. Uh, we saw that in chapter 3. Remember, it said that we're, our job is actually to be a pillar of that truth, that God is about salvation through Jesus. Uh, that's the purpose of this gathering, this group of people. That's the gain that he wants us to be focused on. So let me ask you again, when it comes to your own heart and as you think about the week ahead or perhaps the year ahead or the lifetime ahead, what is your heart pursuing? What do you hope to gain? Now I'm asking it uh, again because this passage is all about gains and first under the x-ray, if that's the right medical piece of equipment, Uh, are the gains of, well, the false teachers. If you've got the passage open there, you'll see in verse 3, he talks about those who are teaching falsely in Ephesus. He's picking up really on where he started this letter, back in chapter 1, where he had uh, warned Timothy, who was like an overseer of uh, the, the church or churches in Ephesus, to silence false teaching. Don't let that be heard. And, and the reason he was so keen for it not to be heard is that actually that teaching leads people away from God's great goal, salvation. It leads them away from hope in Christ. And so here in uh, verses 3 to 5 of chapter 6, we see what gain is in the heart of these false teachers, what drives them as they go about their ministry uh, in Ephesus. Two gains seem to be uh, uh, what drives them. One is more subtle and one is, well, crude and obvious. Uh, Verse 4, you've got a more subtle one. What drives them is conceit, pride. That's what it's it's about them. Uh, But even uh, more obvious and perhaps, well, the crudest goal they have, do you see at the end of verse 5, their goal is to exercise godliness to just make money. That's their goal. They actually think that by serving as teachers, by exercising godly ministry, that they'll actually make money out of it. And Well, here's the first challenge, I think, for our hearts as we see what's in their hearts and what drives them. Is my gain lined up with God? Is my gain the salvation of others? Is that what I'm driven by? Or is my gain myself and, well, even more crudely, my wealth? Now, it, it is important to say, as I ask that question, that first and foremost, the challenge in these opening verses of our passage is actually directed at those who would presume to teach in the church. It's directed at, at ministers. Uh, we're going to get to your heart in a second, but uh, it's, it's, it's important to say that verses 3 to 5 are aimed at those who would presume to teach in God's house, his church. And so the question that I asked is actually a question, well, for myself. And it's a question I've been thinking about this week as I've read verses 3 to 5. What do I hope to gain out of ministry here at St Andrews? 
am I in ministry for the salvation of others or am I in ministry for myself? Now, in one sense, that seems a silly question. Who would go into ministry for the glory or the pay of it? Uh, I'm actually paid less now than my first couple of years out of university. It's not been a great career path when it comes to pay. So if I'm in it for money, I've really chosen an, an ordinary path. But, but scan deeper. That's skin deep. Scan deeper. Have a look at these two gains that drive the false teachers in Ephesus. That first one, verse 5, conceit. Verse 4, sorry, conceit. Uh, here's the question that I think it forces a minister uh, like myself to ask. How much does the need for recognition drive my ministry? Uh, as I thought about that this week, uh, here's my conclusion. In my heart, I want to do well as a minister. I really want to do well. And, and uh, th there's noble reasons for that. There's gospel reasons for that. I want the gospel to do well in Warunga. I want, want to see the gospel prosper here. I want to see salvation here. And in one sense, I could say, well, that's why I want to do well. But, but truth be known, there's a whole lot of me wrapped up in it as well. I want to do well. Uh, here's an example uh, of what that looks like in my own experience, uh, uh, even just from this series. Uh, as we've explored 1 Timothy together along the way, especially as we, we traversed uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, sometimes what I have taught uh, from the pulpit has not always been well received. <laughs> uh, people have been disappointed uh, by things that have been said, angry. Uh, but what I'm fascinated by in those moments is my response uh, compliments, I wonder if you're like this, I suspect I'm not alone, they're like oxygen to me, I need them to, to sort of live, or at least I think I do. Uh, but every single criticism is like kryptonite, producing in me this sort of perverse desire either to defend myself against the criticism or at least just be liked again by the person who doesn't like me. <laughs> and as I respond in that way, I need to ask, what gain are you after, Andrew? What, what are you hoping to gain? I think in these verses we're seeing something really important about false teaching. I reckon most times when we think of false teaching, we think of false doctrine, people who are teaching things that are not true, and that is false teaching. The Bible has lots to say about that. But sometimes false teaching can be in the form of, well, pure doctrine. It can be completely right, but come from a corrupt heart. And it's fascinating, isn't it? As, as Paul talked about the qualifications for teachers in 1 Timothy in chapter 3, most of what he drove at was heart characteristics, including pride, including conceit. Now, I felt this acutely this week, both personally as I've thought about this for myself, but, but in recent weeks, uh, one of the things that I've been quite disturbed by is having come from um, before uh, serving here the, in the UK... Uh, uh, the UK evangelical movement, Anglican especially evangelical movement, is going through, well, well a profound crisis at the moment. Uh, people that I know and love, some people that I've served with, uh, recently a number of well-known evangelical ministers there have fallen publicly and are still falling. Uh, and it's not over doctrine. It's not over sexual immorality. It's about pure pride. It is difficult to overstate some of those who have fallen, how effective their ministry has been, uh, how much their churches have grown, how many churches they've planted, how many movements they've started that have impacted not just the UK but the world. But behind skin-deep success stories have been, well, in the end, just arrogance and overbearing abusive leadership. 
that defends its own interests at the costs of, well, others. It is the antithesis of God's heart. And God says to such teachers, verse 4, they are conceited and they understand nothing. There's the first uh, false gain that uh, we see in the teachers. Here's the second one that's challenged me this week. Verse 5, these teachers seem to be in it to, to get rich. And in one sense, again, that seems a low risk for a minister that they'll, they'll get fabulously wealthy out of their ministry. I mean, my stipend is set by the diocese. It, it, it's, it's, it's got a roof on it. If, if giving at this church increases, my stipend just stays where it is, which is good for us and probably good for me. <laughs> but for a Sydney Anglican minister serving in a wealthy parish like this, there are other material drivers that may motivate me to serve here rather than somewhere else that I have to keep in mind. Remember, the scan isn't just skin deep. I think back to 2013 when, when uh, we moved here as a family and if, I, if you were to ask the 2013 me, why did you come here to serve? A, a, a very clear answer. I remember driving around the streets of this area and seeing the huge gospel opportunity, seeing uh, the people moving into the area, seeing the schools in the area and thinking there should be a healthy, growing, thriving, outwardly focused church in this area and I, I want to be part of that. I still feel that. But I must keep asking this question. Am I here for the salvation of others or am I here for myself? Now, that's my heart under the scanner. Uh, now the scanner is going to turn to your heart. Let me ask you again, what gain do you live for? In your heart of hearts, are you living for the salvation of others? Is that your job description? Now, in one sense, you might hear that and go, no, that's the minister's job description. Actually, no, that's... All Christians' job description. That's the church's job description. So let me ask you, are you living for the salvation of others or are you living for yourself and, well, more crudely, your wealth? Uh, the Bible talks about money a lot. And I reckon the reason the Bible talks about money a lot is it knows how much it embeds in our heart as what we love and what we treasure. So let me ask of your heart, what drives your use of the money that God has given you? Uh, perhaps it's security. Now, I reckon for lots of people in the, the current climate, after the craziness of last year, there, there is a real spirit of that at the moment. I just need to keep hold of my money because I don't know what's going to happen next year. It's also crazy at the moment. I'll just hang on to it just in case. Or perhaps what drives you in terms of your use of money is, well, opportunities, opportunities that you want to have or your family or good opportunities that, that the money will afford. Or perhaps what drives your use of money is actually commitments to others. You have a number of commitments to, to others who need financial help, and that's what drives your use of money. Or perhaps, actually, just your use of money as well as about managing debt and staying afloat. Let me ask you again, what are you hoping your money will gain? How easy it is, not just for ministers, but for all of us to to gradually have our sense of what gain looks like realigned over time from, from salvation of others to myself, my family. Now, how do you steer a wise path when it comes to what, what gain looks like? Well, I think 1 Timothy 6 and the verses uh, that we'll go on to now, verses 6 to 10, uh, help us with biblical realism when it comes to future planning about such things. Uh, these verses, verse 6 to 10, they're going to do three things for us. They're going to define what true gain looks like. They're going to compare that true gain with, with monetary gain. And then they're going to push even further and expose how foolish pursuing 
monetary gain really is. So let's look at each of those in turn briefly. Have a look at verse 6, where you've got true gain defined. If you want to know what gain is as far as God is concerned, here it is, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Real gain is the contentment that only godliness can bring. And do you remember from our letter what the secret of godliness is? It's not our effort. It's not some routine. What was 1 Timothy 3.16? What was the secret of godliness? It's the Lord Jesus. It was his appearance as a man. It was his death on a cross. It was his resurrection. It was his being declared among the nations. That's the secret of godliness. The secret of godliness is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That's the secret from which godliness springs because it does two things to our heart, which is what godliness is about. Firstly, it sets our heart on him as our treasure. He's at the centre. And then it starts to shape our, the character of our heart around his and like his. And therein lies contentment. We actually saw this way back in chapter 1, verse 5, where it, I think it really fleshed out the definition of contentment for us. It says, this is what the goal is. This is what the gain is. 1, one verse 5 says, the goal is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The more we hear and receive and accept this gospel, the more it will give you a pure heart and a good conscience. That's what contentment looks like. Living with a heart that you know is forgiven and freed forever before God, that's contentment. And then a, a contented heart is a heart that has a sincere faith, like an anchor for the soul that, that nothing, no matter what we experience, can take from us. And all of that is meant to drive towards love, a heart that is outward, a heart that loves like God's heart does, that seeks salvation. And so here's gain, the gain of godly contentment. It's a heart that does two things. It's settled, a settled heart or an at-peace heart because God loves me. And I know that because of the Lord Jesus. And then a heart that's, well, the opposite of settled, that's stirred by that love to love others and be about his purposes in the world. I wonder if you notice that the Bible's definition of contentment has Jesus right at the centre. And that's because self-centeredness uh, is the antithesis of contentment. Contentment uh, is actually a prized character in our, characteristic in our world. Uh, even the Stoic philosophers uh, valued it. They said that's the ultimate way of living. If you can live contented, uh, contented life, you, you, you're living life at, at its peak. And, and for them, contentment was all about self-sufficiency. That's the point you need to reach. And it's interesting that, that that sort of philosophy actually influences the way we think in the Western world, I think. Because that's why we're so driven to, to accumulate wealth, because we want to get to that point of self-sufficiency. But when the Bible talks about sufficiency, it is a sufficiency that is within us, but not from us. It comes from the grace that's been shown to us in the Lord Jesus. It, our sufficiency comes from his sufficiency, not our own. There's the secret of contentment. It's not in me. Nor is it in the things that my hands can grasp. It is in Jesus Christ alone and by faith he lives in me. That's why I'm content. Uh, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, he speaks of this idea in another letter, Philippians. This is what he says and this is what godly contentment looks like. But whatever was to my gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. There's contentment. There's great gain to find. A heart that is clinging to Jesus by faith and a heart that is learning to love as he does. 
Now, I reckon we know that as Christians. We know that's what contentment is. But I also reckon we second-guess it, especially in the 21st century Western world. We think, well, life's more complicated than that. That, that can't be what just alone drives me. Yeah, there's, there's complex issues at play in my life. Uh, surely I need a more diverse portfolio of gain than, than just Jesus. Well, with that in mind, verses 7 and 8 goes on to compare pursuing gain in, in godliness and pursuing gain in wealth. Have a, have a look at it. I don't think you could get a more uh, real verse than verse 7. Here's biblical realism. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Pretty simple, isn't it? Hard to argue with. There's clarity. We live uh, as creatures in between two moments where we will be completely empty-handed. We'll not have a thing in our hand. And yet the, the thing is, our world, we know that, and yet the, way, the, the, the impact of that reality on our world is, well, it, it is to do everything in our power to fill our hands in the in-between time before the empty-handed bit comes. But the reality is, given the undeniable reality of the empty-handed beginning and especially the end, surely this desperate attempt to fill our hands now just makes life, well, in the words of Ecclesiastes, meaningless. And in our experience, I wonder if you know this, it makes it anxious and insecure and discontent. In the words of the old nursery rhyme, there is a hole in the bucket, dear Liza. Why do we live this way? Why do we live this way when our experience tells us it doesn't work and when Scripture keeps testifying that clarity, not just here in verse 7, but listen to this from Ecclesiastes 5. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. It's hard to to debate against that, isn't it? And as everyone comes, so they will depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Why do we try to fill our hands then? I think we do it because either we, we, we don't know or we have forgotten and lost sight of the secret of godly contentment. We've forgotten that Jesus alone can satisfy my heart. We've forgotten that nothing, not even death, can separate me from his love. Nothing will, will, uh, will remove me from the grip of his hand. His hand will never be empty-handed because he has me, safe, secure. That's the secret of contentment. He is. His purpose is. His presence is. His love is that, that nothing can take from us. Therefore, in the in-between time, between the empty-handed moments, how should we live? Well, again, verse 8 puts it about as simply as it can. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Don't you love that? I mean, the apostle here, and we'll see this more next week, he's not actually advocating some sort of uh, aesthetic life where we have a single possession in our lives, perhaps a hair shirt or something. That's all, that's all I own, and, and now I'm living the contented life. It's not uh, either saying pursue poverty. In fact, next week we'll see he speaks to Christians who are rich. And his, his goal there is not to say, get rid of everything. It's, he's aiming at their heart. And that's what's happening here in verse 8 as well. It's saying this. What is your heart's response to whatever you have, wherever you're at in terms of material well-being? And basically what we're being told is your heart will be in one of two states. It'll either be content with food and clothing. That's enough. Or it'll want more. It'll want to get rich. Which is it for you? And as you consider your answer, the Apostle Paul pushes one uh, further uh, place in verses 9 and 10 to show us how foolish it would be to have a heart that wants more. 
Uh, look at verse 9. I think it traces for us the experience and the, the downward spiral of discontent in pursuing uh, gain in wealth. It says this, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is big, isn't it? I mean, step one in this, this process is the fall into temptation. As our hearts get set on wealth, there will be moments for us in life where there'll be the opportunity to have more. I'll give you a, an example, perhaps a silly small example from my own ministry, but it is an example of this. Uh, often uh, serving at, uh, say, something like a funeral or a wedding, uh, uh, fam the family will want to uh, kindly express thanks. And, and often the way that happens is that I'll receive a card and in the card will be a cheque with my name on it or even just cash. <laughs> what should I do with that money? I I'm paid a stipend so I don't need to worry about money and here's some more money and I work for it. Just should I keep it? Or how about you from your life? This may or may not be you. Perhaps uh, you change job and you get a pay rise or just in the same job and you get a pay rise. Or, or maybe your house increases in value, say 100000 in the last three months or, or something like that. Or there's a regular expense that you've had for, for some time and it drops off, so there's more disposable cash. What do you do in those moments? You've worked for it. Do you keep it? I think the answer to both my question and yours depends on what gain my heart is set on. Uh, and if it is set on wealth, here's the next step in the, in the downward uh, path. Step two, we fall into a trap. It, it, go through that small decision-making process enough time about what to do with our money uh, and with wealth as our gain, and we, we walk into the devil's trap. What does the devil want to do when it comes to wealth? What he wants to do is he wants to detach contentment and godliness. He wants us to say, well, there's my godly life, trusting Jesus, and all that gives me, and then there's contentment, and they're not the same thing. Uh, I pursue contentment in this thing over here. It's a bit like he, he's saying to us, as he said to Adam and Eve, did God really say you can't keep it? Of course he didn't. And as we fall into that trap, next comes step three in verse nine. Our hearts start to get rewired. And we are rewired into foolish and harmful desires, foolish greed that thinks it can keep what it grabs with its hands. Instead of the godly desire that would want to use what has been placed in our hands for the one who gave it and his purpose. Eventually you get to verse 10. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Uh, it seems, as far as the Bible is concerned, that trying to sort of hedge or, or balance a, a view of pursuing godly contentment and wealth contentment and trying to balance those is not a lifestyle choice. It's, well, self-defeating foolishness. You see how radical biblical realism is when it comes to things that we, we know about, money? Do you see how immersed we are in a culture that is driven by discontent? The, the whole Western economic system depends on discontent. You need more. And it's dependent on the denial of the power of the contentment that comes from simply knowing Christ Jesus. It is, uh, in a culture like ours, hard to imagine what contentment based on the gain of godliness might actually look like. And yet that is exactly what the household of God is called to be in the world, content in him. And the secret of that is teaching each other the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, such that we can own the words that the Apostle Paul spoke in Philippians, whatever was to my gain, I now consider a loss compared to Jesus. 
Can you imagine what it might look like for me as a minister or for you to, to be content in that? Just as we finish, here's, here's what it might look like. It would look like your minister learning contentment in Jesus so that he never demands loyalty to him and his cause, but only to Christ and his cause. It would look like your minister serving in Warunga, not because it's comfortable to do so, but because God wants Warunga saved. It would look like your minister not seeing gospel ministry as a means to personal gain. Your minister seeing the great gain that comes from simply becoming more like Christ and being happy with that. Will you pray that for me? And what might it look like for you? Well, I think it would look like a church family learning contentment in Jesus and his purposes and no longer seeking to fit into the culture around us, but living deliberately between these two empty-handed moments with our hands fully grasping faith in Jesus as our great gain. It may mean along the way making radical financial decisions not to see your wealth increase, but to see his kingdom increase and salvation increase. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, this building that we're in, that we, we've, we've built together over the last year or so, there's, there's 60000 left on a short-term loan to, to pay it off. There's, there's about 270000 on a long-term loan. And we, we've given ourselves a project to, to pay off the short-term loan by the end of this year and the long-term loan by, well, three or four years from now. Uh, truth is, based on what the Lord has provided us each with, we could pay it off by the end of May if our hearts so desired. Now, I don't say that to guilt you. We, we don't have to do that. Uh, I, I say it as an opportunity, and I, I say it with freedom because, well, this building was built not so that we had a shiny room to meet in, but so that this place was a place where ministries that are about the salvation that comes in the Lord Jesus could happen. That's why we did this. We could use our finances to, to, to further bring that about by freeing us from the loan debt. And if we did that, it would actually free up funds to take next steps for mission in this community. Giving to ministry, as, as that increases, so will our kingdom impact. I, I, I'm ready to make the next staff appointment. We can't yet at the moment because of what we can afford. But if our hearts were in it, we could. And again, I don't say that to guilt you. I say it with real freedom because if you give more, I'm not going to get paid more. Uh, but we could do more. You know, at the moment, 65 uh, households, individuals or families, give here, which is wonderful. $684 a month is the average. I have no idea who gives what. I don't want to know. It's wonderful to see how that has increased over time. That's an expression of that, that uh, setting our hearts to this gain. Now, I assume most people, if, say, we gave 10% of our income, that would mean an average household income in our church of around $80,000. Now, you might hear that figure and think, wow, that's miles more than our household earns. Or you may think, well, that's about right. Or you may think, I earn that by, well, February each year. Well, whatever your situation is, every single one of us has the opportunity to set our heart on increasing his kingdom, not ours. Again, I, I, I don't talk about this sort of stuff very often. The Bible does, so maybe I've got a problem there. But uh, there is freedom and opportunity. It's not about guilt. It's about freedom. And finally, what would this look like, setting a heart for gain on Christ and his purposes? It would look like a church family content with the gain of becoming together more like Christ, seeing his purpose of salvation spread from this place. Will you pray that for each other? Uh, I'm going to pray now and then we're going to finish with uh, a song.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know us far better than we know ourselves. You know what's in our hearts. And you know that each one of us here, to a man and a woman, has mixed motives in our hearts. Uh, we are complicated creatures, and yet your word is simple and clear here. We pray, Father, that you would set our hearts on the Lord Jesus, that he be our treasure, that our worth be in him, and you would set our hearts on his purpose in this world, salvation and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to sing together.